The basis of our language, which Worm had named Zaniva, was simple syllables that could easily and musically be strung together to quickly produce whole ideas. In fact, the name Zaniva itself was just another way of saying, we are. And as I mentioned before, since to be and fire are the same word, Zeniva Zen could either mean we are fire or fires are to be. This may sound confusing, but I assure you, if I can understand it, I'm sure anyone can. I must say, in retrospect, the conjugations of verbs are quite beautiful. In Zeniva, there was no need for pronouns or synonyms. He, him, man, and boy were all simply ken. She, her, woman, and girl were simply kel. We, kiva, is just a combination of me, ki, and you, va. They, kenel, is just a combination of he, ken, and she, kel. And to create subject-verb agreement, it was just a variation on that theme, making the subject redundant and superfluous. Zen, to be, to live, life, fire. I am, zeni, you are, zena, he or she is, zenen, zenel. It is, zenark, we are, zeniva. They are Zen and L. With most languages, verbs evolve to be irregular, making them shorter and easier to say. They're faster on the tongue and more conducive to slang and laziness. Linguists would agree that the same is true for contractions. Zeniva was designed for quick, lazy simplicity, so contractions and irregular verbs were unnecessary. There was no uppercase, no awkward tenses, and very little punctuation. The sounds were simple and consistent devoid of diphthongs, triphthongs, glides, heterophones, hiatus, grouped consonants, and silent letters. Knowing the root of the verb instantly allowed you access to all conjugations. If you knew pause meant to love, then you also knew pasiva, I love you, and pasalki, does she love me. Negating a statement was as easy as placing a you before the verb. Uzeniva, I am not you. Uzenaki, you are not me. The word for blood, zenek, was a combination of life and fire, zen, and water, ek. The word zeniken, blood man, meant brother. I assume zenikel, blood woman, would simply mean sister had worm ever reason to coin it. Len meant win and succeed, so obviously lose and fail was ulen. On rare occasions, when necessary, it was also how we apologized to each other. Uleniva, I failed you. I lost you. Uleniva zeniken. I'm sorry, brother. Trust me on the fact that most of our language was crafted by worm. I don't have the creativity, ingenuity, or patience to design something this beautiful on my own. But my brother's genius, combined with his introversion, proved persistent enough to generate a whole new tongue. In his journals, he even created a smarter alphabet and managed to drop it down to 17 characters, providing all the unique sounds of Zeniva in a straightforward manner. Thankfully for me, however, 20 of the 22 journals were in our Phoenician alphabet of 26 letters, so I only needed to translate and not decrypt. Much of the opposite of what one would expect, having a secret language is more liberating than constrictive. Other close-knit siblings have told me that an original tongue is fairly commonplace, 
though I assume most languages aren't as complex or well-documented as ours. Just like sharing a room, a last name, and parents, sharing a language is a way to create further assurance that one isn't alone in the world. And more than simply coexisting, it also provides a way to connect, a way to feel safe. A word provides comfort. It provides solace and compassion. It increases knowledge and advances understanding. It compels us forward in times of fear and holds us back in times of danger. A simple uttered syllable changes everything. With Worm, it helped him to communicate with the world by installing a secured line. Through me, his thoughts, desires, and opinions were filtered, washed, and redressed before presented to the public. His cautious voice was my arrangement, for on the rare occasion where he felt compelled to share himself, he radiated the confidence of my disposition. His protests found a megaphone. His propaganda had a teleprompter and a platform. His gooey vulnerability grew a thick candy shell. And Zeniva allowed for nothing to be lost in translation, nothing to be decoded en route, and nothing to expose his insecurities. At the same time, Worm's other voice was growing in harmony. He poured through the tomes of the greats with effortless grace. The imposing vertical stack of the bard was brick by brick inverted in a single summer, with Worm's prolific hand producing notes and reactions that rivaled its heights. The omnibuses of Western and Eastern religions were digested nearly as quickly and absolutely as the Holy Host. Worm had completed his first collection by the age of nine, shortly after Eli had left boot camp for the Middle East. It was an 85-page introspective on war from a religious and literary perspective written entirely in iambic pentameter and including a five-page list of sources cited. He called it the Genesis Cycle, 5,000 years of war starting and ending in the Garden of Eden. It was too dense for my simple mind, which was pubescent in the consumption of sports and girls. I faintly remember Worm's conjecture, though, that the forbidden food was plucked neither from the tree of life nor the tree of knowledge, but from the vine of greed. And it was, in fact, a cluster of grapes that Adam gave to Eve, one that with every fruit ingested created a growing feeling of emptiness and hunger. Interestingly enough, six years later, Worm would revisit this theme with his first foray into writing for the stage. The script was called Second Son, and revolved around the idea that if the angel was one second delayed in appearing before Abraham, he would have been unable to halt the filicide of Isaac. This would leave only Ishmael as a sole progenitor of religion and prevent innumerable deaths due to holy wars, crusades, and jihads. Even in his first work, in which I was cast on our high school stage as the woeful Abraham, Worm's subject matter danced lightly around the trials of siblings. Much to his chagrin, the school required a disclaimer to be Xeroxed into the playbills, stating, neither its administrators nor its body favored a society in which Islam was the one true religion, and Judaism and Christianity were sundered by the brisk plunging of Abraham's dagger. A better use of the space, Worm muttered, was a sermon on the dangers of truancy. Tunic-clad and besmirched in stage blood, my eyes were opened to the deep and brooding mind of my silent sibling. Though I required translation and explanation by fellow cast members, a director, an acting coach, and three heralding critics for the local paper, I learned of Worm's solitary, blossoming genius and my own mediocrity. Dressed in his words, I limned a depth I did not possess. 
And each night, as I stood over the towering sacrificial pyre of the slain Isaac, I witnessed a crowd move to tears, ovation and appreciation. Their eyes were focused solely on me. Needless to say, my time on the soccer pitch from then on would be shared with a newfound enthusiasm for the stage. Only, I demanded, only if Worm was my muse. As Worm's confidence for his written voice accelerated, it throttled his status among the Pine Harbor thespians and critics and fast-tracked his writing career. It also propelled my reputation as an actor. I goaded my brother incessantly, asking him to write more heroic roles, begging him to include intimacy with female co-stars. Each time, he would merely shrug and return to his journals. In his sophomore production, Romulus, I heroically battled in the title role, abducting the Sabine tribeswomen and dragging them back to Rome. There, in Worm's magnificent prose, I proselytized on the expansion of my empire among the Roman legions. Before the SPQR in public assembly, I praised my father, the god of war, in tyrannical diatribes. Only in private did Romulus fall to his knees, secretly praying to his fallen twin, Remus, beseeching him for guidance and meaning. Women clung to the tales of my toga, and on more than one occasion did I deflower a Sabine actress backstage. I bragged to my brother and told him of the spoils of war. He only nodded. Perplexed at his tepid response to my altruism, I begged him to write a tale where two brothers ruled side by side. That way, I said, he and me could star together and reap the benefits of recognition and freshman girls. Uzeni va, was all he replied. I am not you.